In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Welcome back to the True Life Podcast, Sunday edition. We've got the entire team here. We've got Benjamin George, our friend Ranga, and Kevin Holt. And uh, for those who may not know everybody, I thought that I would just take a moment to let everybody introduce themselves, and then we can kind of get into some of the topics. So why don't you start off, Benjamin? Sure. Uh, Benjamin George, uh, lifelong entrepreneur, uh, traveled around the world quite a bit. These days, I spend a lot of my time in research and development on, you know, sustainability and technology solutions, the automation, artificial intelligence, cryptocurrencies, things like that. And uh, happy to have a nice Sunday chat with some folks. (laughs) Nice. Ranga, tell people that may not know who you are. Ranga here. Uh, I'm interested in talking about psychedelics, raising awareness about psychedelics, meditation, and uh, helping us become more peaceful by working on ourselves. So wherever I could help in those parts. Yes. Absolutely. Kevin, for people who may not know you. Yeah, my name's Kevin Holt. It's actually not my real last name, but I shortened it because my actual last name is a butcher, uh, butchered all the time, and I don't like it. So I'm I'm a sort of a nomad as well. Lived in about nine different countries, learned a bunch of languages, doing that thing. And I've written a book. Uh, I'm working on a second one, which uh, will come out hopefully in a couple of months about divorce and relationships and things like that. So I wow. like writing. I'm into psychedelics, and I'm also into, you know, spiritual awareness and uh, growth. Very nice. Yeah. I, one thing that I really admire about all of us, and since we're talking, one of the topics we're going to talk today is about parallel structures. And when I think of parallel structures, I think of a system within a system, sometimes a system within a system within a system. So if you think about organized religion, if you think about like an LLC, there's all these vehicles that operate underneath the state. And sometimes when the state becomes corrupted, it's these alternative vehicles or these parallel structures that we operate in to live a life worth living. 
And when I look at every one of you, I think on some level, we have all lived our own little parallel structure with, you know, uh, with Benjamin starting up the Terra Libre project, Kevin traveling around the world, Ranga moving all the way from India to Canada, from mechanical engineer to psychedelic advocate. Like we have all kind of made up our own rules and decided our own parallel structures. And so as I was thinking about this idea where we are in this world, I thought, what better way than to get these people together that have found a way to be successful and maybe share some of the ideas that they have used in their life for other people that they can use in their life. So I wanted just to start the start a little bit about what Benjamin, let's start with you about parallel structures and some techniques or some things that you use to set up your parallel structure. Um, you know, I would say for me personally, the first thing was the realization that I had a different option. I could make a different choice. Yes, that choice was going to, you know, quote unquote, cost me. Um, it would it would take me out of the, the rat race, so to speak. You know, I wouldn't be keeping up with the Joneses for sure. Uh, but all of a sudden I, I woke up and realized that, hey, there is a different option. I can go off and have a grand adventure. I can go off on my own hero's journey. Um, and in order to realize that, you know, there's some, there's some practical things that have to happen. You're like, well, passports, visas, um, you know, languages, uh, Kevin, you, you talked about, you know, your multiple languages. I've had a lot of experience in my travels and learning languages too. And, you know, it's you, so you have to take into the account all of these different iterative pieces of, of information and then you have to make a choice uh, and you're going to define your own parallel structure within that choice. Uh, and it'll be entirely as fluid as you want it to be, or it'll be as rigid as you make it. Uh, at least that was my initial foray into the whole, the whole world of, oh, well, everything I was taught was bullcrap. So maybe I should find a different path. <laughs> That's amazing to think about. Ranga, I'm, I'm curious about your journey. Like, you, as someone who came from a completely different culture and different background and then moved to like the to the West, Western way of of schooling and stuff like that. Do you see the world differently being from a different culture? And then now that you're submerged in this other culture, is it 180 degrees or how is it different? You, you said, right, it was beautiful. Uh, it's a system within the system. So I would see the culture I came from was more limiting in views. So it was definitely like a smaller prison inside a bigger prison, right? So moving to the West, yes, um, immediately when the prison size becomes bigger, I mean, thought-wise, right? Uh, it, it is freeing. You add the small room to navigate with respect to how you are perceiving the world. And uh, now that, that wall is broken. It's a, you're in a bigger wall. You have not realized it yet because you're still exploring. So that newer side of consciousness, you're exploring the freedom, the liberation, being able to... Uh, talk freely, right? Have, have more open-ended conversations. Um, yeah, uh, pretty much things like that. So that was the first thing that was I was able to practically notice and also integrate and see uh, I, I could be freer in communicating. Yeah. Yeah, it seems sometimes the cultural barriers we come from, they follow us. I know when I came from California to Hawaii, you know, it's such a melting pot over here of so many different Asian cultures. And 
you know, I, I really learned a lot about my limiting beliefs and, and my little blinders that I had on about how I thought the world should be and how it kind of exploded when, you know, I was just put in contact with different people and, and understandings. Kevin, you've traveled like all over the world and you, for those that don't know, Kevin has done something amazing. He has got this thing down where he can pretty much move to any country and be successful. You know, he's, he's gone from Japan to Bali, you know, over to New York and stuff. But how do you see, are, are there different structures and different parallel structures in, in different parts of the world? Kevin, is, is there systems within systems in different countries as well? Yeah, for sure. The, this is happening everywhere. And once you take that leap that Ben was talking about, and we don't want to downplay the first initial leap because it is kind of scary when you start mm -hmm. doing it. And I saw an interesting interview of some woman, I think she's an astrologer or something like that. And she said that according to her teacher, something like 70% of people get their information externally. They look to the outside for their opinions and thoughts and their, they, seek, they look to their community for all these things. And the first step really, and George, uh, Ben, you kind of touched on this, is to kind of separate from this and start looking inward on your own path, like looking for your own path inside rather than looking externally. And uh, that can be isolating at first when you try to find your own path through this dark forest. But then when you, when you finally do it, you find that it's actually, it opens up so many things and you meet other travelers on this path. And we're doing it right now in this context. We're the, the five, well, there's a fifth person now, but the four of us mm -hmm. together, we're doing it now. Like this is, mm -hmm. this is us finding our, our people on this path. And when you travel to other countries, you see the same thing happening to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the culture that you're in and how conformist it is. So I think it was harder to find those people in Japan. But when I did find them, they were almost more extremely differentiated from society because they had that much more to break through to get onto that path. So hard to find, but yeah, they're definitely out there. Nice. Paul, can you hear us, buddy? Are you over there? Yeah. Nice, man. Thanks for chiming in. Uh, next on the line we have, we don't have Paul's picture up, but we've got him on audio. And, uh, for those, Paula Powell is the, uh, not only a great friend of mine, but he's the owner operator of Maui queen bee company. He recently co-authored a paper on colony collapse at the, uh, Kanzawa university. And, uh, well, welcome, welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for showing up, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Absolutely. So we were just getting into the idea, Paul, of different cultures and systems within systems. And one thing that for, for those that don't know, uh, Paul is a, not only is he the owner operator of the, of the Maui queen farm, but he raises queen bees. And him and I recently had a discussion about colony collapse. And it makes me think, like, is it possible some of the things we're seeing in the bee colony collapse are the same reasons we're seeing our society collapse. So I'm trying to make the point that there's a system with the bees. There's a system in the colony collapse, but I think that we can see it in our own world. Paul, can you talk to us a little bit about the system inside a beehive and can we learn stuff from the beehive system in our culture? Well, I mean, honeybees are a lot different than, than people and both how they behave and, and what their function is. Um, but you know, what's happening with honeybees is 
you know, the result of outside influences. You know, I think what people are doing is the result of, of our, ourselves, you know, um, it's been, it's, it's, um, it's interesting to, when you look at like, as a beekeeper, I've always tried to look at the similarities between honeybees and people. And, and honestly, I, I don't really see a lot of similarities, you know, um, you know, other than, you know, um, honeybees are, you know, live in a colony, people live in communities and, you know, honeybees, you know, communicate at a high level, um, as well as people do, but, you know, but that's kind of where the, you know, where the paths diverge, you know, honeybees are always looking for, you know, behaving on the best interest of the colonies and, and mm. you know, people don't really do that, you know? And so I think, I think, you know, if, if, if bees didn't have these outside influences that were affecting, you know, the things that they feed on and the places that they live, then, you know, they would go on uninterrupted, you know, for forever. Um, you know, barring some major earthly, you know, calamity. Um, but people, you know, just because of our, the way that we are, you know, we could be, you know, shortening, you know, our time here on earth all on our own, you know, rapidly. Okay, let me stop. Let me, let me ask you this thing right here. So when we look at the outside, you said that the bee colony collapse is mainly something to do with our environment but isn't that the same thing that's happening right now with people is like this outward environment if you look at the the factors that are calling if you look at the factors that are causing bee colony collapse that's the breakdown of a system the same way that our system is breaking down maybe bees run on honey but people run on money i make it rhyme every time right there but <laughs> you know it seems to me that with limited resources or the degradation of the environment, be it a social environment or be it, you know, uh, just the degradation of the bees environment. Might, might that be, may, might that be something that uh, we can see breaking down in the system? Aren't, aren't those two things kind of similar, like a system within a system? Yeah, but, but it's happening to all, all type, types of things. I mean, almost everything on planet Earth is being affected by this. You know, it's not just honeybees. Um, this is true. This is true. You know, so I mean, when I look at honeybees, you know, like I said, I, I look at them and I think, you know, if, if people weren't here, you know, messing things up, then <laughs> they would just continue to go on uninterrupted. Um, you know, it's, it's people that have moved things like the Varroa mite, um, you know, around the world. It's, it's, it's people that have you know, have been largely responsible for bloodborne diseases that affect, you know, honeybees, you know, around the world. Um, you know, bees are pretty resilient in that, you know, they've, they've always adapted to their, you know, specific locations of, you know, to, you know, weather extremes and, and to, you know, predators and, and everything else. It's been, you know, it's been when people got involved in managing honeybees, if, if mm. we can actually call it managing, um, is when you know things started going terribly wrong for honeybees. Okay, let me Benjamin, let me ask you this. Do you think that it's people managing other people that causes the decay of society? And then I'm gonna ask everybody else that one. So if you you guys are on deck, be ready. Benjamin, what do you think? Well, yeah, I you know, the 
the notion that uh, people should be ruled <laughs> is something that, uh, you know, we don't really get to explore at a personal level. We're, we're born into it and we're, we're forced to accept it uh, at varying different levels, depending on what country and what location you are in the world. Uh, so whenever you have somebody who's managing somebody else, their self-interest, I mean, this is game theory, right? Their self-interest is going to outweigh, you know, as long as it doesn't destroy the system entirely, like, i.e., they get fired or something like that, uh, it, their self-interest will always take precedent over, you know, whatever system they're supposed to be supporting. Uh, and then you have things like bad actors and stuff like that that really kind of add, you know, turn it into a conflagration. And, you know, we've seen that replete throughout history. Uh, it, in the B regard, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you all are familiar. Uh, there was an experiment done with rats where they basically uh, created a, an opulent environment for rats where they weren't having to forage for their food. It was all just provided for them. There was an overabundance of everything. And they observed that their society, all of a sudden, like rats just developed these wild behaviors. Some of them would be obsessed with pruning and preening themselves all day long. Some of them would be completely lackadaisical. Some would be highly motivated to gather resources. So they actually developed similar kind of pathologies to, to humans when there was a, an overabundance of resources. And I wonder what would happen if an overabundance of resources in like a hive situation, because that's usually not the case. Like they're always, you know, there's always the next, the next effort that needs to happen. But if you could create that artificial environment, would bees behave the same way? Mm. Is our behavior some sort of mechanistic function of, of abundance or lack thereof? Yeah, that's a good question. Paul, what, did you hear that, Paul? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. What do you think? Well, what, I mean, what if? Good. So bees have what's known as a swarm, you know, um, tendency. They some bees, depending on where they, you know, are located on Earth, you know, will swarm more or less than others. And usually, you know, swarming begins in the spring when resources are abundantly available: nectar and pollen, and and um, you know they have. <clears throat> You know, they're directing the queen to, you know, lay a lot of eggs and, and the hunt, the hive begins to explode in population. And then, you know, so I, the, the thing about honeybees is I don't know if you could ever test that because they, they're going to want to go somewhere else. They're going to want to, they're, they're like, we're feeling so good about ourselves. There should be two of us, you know. <laughs> and um, so, you know, what they'll do is they'll, they'll take the old queen and, um, you know, start feeding her less and then they'll make new queen cells and then they'll, you know, the, the, you know, a big portion of the, of the workers will swarm the old queen out of the hive and go find somewhere else to live. And they'll leave some of the workers and all of the brood and, you know, almost fully developed queen cells, you know, back at their original location. And, and, and then, so then the hive will take a, you know, a, a, you know, its resources will begin to slide, you know, downwardly a little bit until the new queen, you know, until the new queens emerge and then they fight it out and you have one queen that's left and that queen will fly off and mate and come back and, and begin laying eggs again. And then the population will begin to rise. And some honeybees will do that, you know, a couple times a year. Some, some colonies will do that a couple times a year. 
some honeybees will do that, you know, you know, eight, 10, 12 times a year, maybe even more, um, depending on what kind of bees they are. So like, I don't think, you know, honeybees have ever probably faced anything like that. Um, you know, an overabundance, you know, I can see a bunch of bees just sitting around doing nothing. Like, yeah, everything's taken care of. You got all right. the pollinating done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't really happen. So there's no welfare system for the bees. They just don't sit around. <laughs> oh, no, they don't. And then, in <laughs> fact, like, you know, like if you if you're a bee and you're not pulling your weight, like drones, male bees, you know, at the end of the season, they'll 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 get rid of you or kill you because mm-hmm. you're not pulling your weight and you're a drain on the resources and you don't provide protection to the hive. It's like a self governing self governing body. Ron, let me ask. You know, the honeybee is like, when you, when you look at, so that's another thing, like, you know, we're, we're a community full of individuals, you know, wherever you live on earth, you know, and honeybees don't really behave, they don't really have individualistic behaviors. When you look at a, a beehive, it's like, I view a beehive as like one thing and everything in it is working on, you know, uh, for the one thing, you know, there's no mm-hmm. individualism there. It's like the Chinese system, it sounds like, where there's more of a collective to it versus like the board, like, you know. the, board the board versus the, the yeah, board. that's what I was going to chime in with. <laughs> Ranga, let me ask you this. Like, so, in, yeah. In, yeah, please, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, in, no, no, in, the, in India, yeah. okay, is the, in India, there's a cat, is there a caste system there? And if so, what? When you come to America, do you see a caste system that is disguised as a non-caste system? I would say caste system is a disguised racial system. So racial system is aware, people are aware throughout the world, right? So in India, you don't grow up thinking it's more of a racial system. It's castes were designed based on the jobs that people were doing, right? Uh, you do not really see it from the race point of view. But then uh, for me, at least personally, when I came to Canada and I got to know more about the racial things that have been happening for the past centuries, uh, there was no difference. It was pretty much uh, similar to what was happening in India. And there are uh, uh, the more darker the skin, for example, there are a caste called Dalit who are untouchable, right? So it is is there. They are both, uh, I think it's, Again, caste system is part of that minier system that in, in a bigger mistake that humans are making. Yeah, that's huge to think about. I, I, Kevin, what do you think? You've done a lot of traveling around the world. Is it, do you, in your opinion, do you think that the, the only social mobility is the fictitious idea of social mobility? No, I don't think it's entirely fictitious. Uh, I do think that in a lot of places it's it's real, but um, I don't have enough experience talking about the race topic to say whether there is yeah. uh, that ingrained to a large degree or not. It seems like it seems like there is, and it seems like even if it's not racial, a lot of times it's what school did you go to? Mm. And I remember when I was at a university, I was looking at, into jobs, and they said quite clearly on some jobs that unless you went to an Ivy League school with a certain grade, they wouldn't even consider your application. So there are these, even if they're not racial, there are socioeconomic status type gatekeeper elements within uh, certainly the West, but I imagine the same thing plays out in a lot of countries. And I saw in Japan too, all the, the quote unquote best jobs 
they would only recruit from really the first top two universities, which was Tokyo University and Waseda University. And to get into those, you had to go to a very prestigious high school. And to get into the prestigious high school, you had to do well on your junior high school exams. And to get into the right junior high school, you had to do well in elementary school to the extent that kids in Japan sometimes kill themselves when they're like 10 because of all that pressure already then, because that's going to determine their entire future because the system is set up that way. So I think there are various elements that can stratify society in that way. Some can be worked around and some really can't. Do you think that it's pretty much been this way, I mean, for our lifetime and maybe even prior, or do you think that this type of behavior is accelerating? I think it might be decelerating, but I think mm. it's still there. Yeah, I think the, the fundamental structure is, is still there and may always be there until we figure a new system out, which hopefully we'll do on this, on this show. Yeah, <laughs> that brings me like, what, Ranga, what, what do you think? Like, you, I'm really amazed at the courage and the awesomeness of what you've done. Like, you were a mechanical engineer. You are a mechanical engineer, but you've decided to, you know what? I'm going to change my profession a little bit. Like that's a huge move to make. And in a way it, it's, it's trading one system for another system, for a better system, maybe trading someone else's dream for your dream. And I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the psychedelic experience that made you come to that realization? Yeah. Um, before we go in there, uh, I would like yeah, to, please. Uh, continue what Kevin was saying. There please, is definitely please. this uh, socio-economic uh, status game that is going on. And I think it was a joke uh, my friend and I were talking about a few years back where in India, there are cities where uh, people are starting to put their, so much pressure into the kids. Uh, at least when I was in grade 10, uh, there were two years of preparation in my high school to get into those institute of technology or something and uh two years preparation became four years and then it became six years and now people start in grade six or grade five you know and uh the joke was basically that you know uh, in these fast running cities what do you think the first thing a couple does after having sex i don't know they basically go and wait in the admission line for a school <laughs> so, they, so the wait times are pretty uh, long so they kind of do that right after right and uh, yeah um, but those those pressure were also there when I was growing up um, it is decelerating but still uh, the acceleration has been so much in the previous generation I think we have still not peaked the amount of people who are trying to compete in that game in, in either the rat race or the status game, right? Uh, it is decelerating based on how much unhappiness it is being led to, right? So I think over the course of maybe the next generation or a couple, there'll be a downfall in the trait, I hope. Um, with respect to my thing, um, yeah. So growing up in India, they give you these concepts to survive on. So it, it helps you survive keep surviving until for me that surviving is was not happiness it's still like barely holding, holding on to the last uh, piece of uh, you know boat when it's dragging in the sea right mm. and uh, for me psychedelics was uh, about 
breaking those concepts right and uh, for once i think i i said this and this would be my constant thing i was able to breathe right that that changes everything when you're able to breathe freely for the first time and uh, whenever the previous concepts are coming you're more certain that this is this is what's just choking me right so it is scary in the beginning because um the people who, who might be on this path are not out there talking about it as much as the people who are actually making decisions for the system to keep the system going so those are the things that are uh you hear first so whatever you want to conceive against the system seems wrong or so you're you're doubtful you're not confident enough to put that as the strong point to start using it to navigate your life right that that's there for the first uh, few months or a year where yeah i i know that I, this is not what i want to do but should i just drop it off immediately it's difficult right so you you still have this idea that maybe i'm just going to go back to that and taking a break but during the the that break time that was the most important thing doing nothing was amazing mm-hmm. and that's where uh, ben your uh, question about overabundance for humans would it be similar to rats or bees i think it might be a little different based on the way self awareness works in humans for example bees or rats they kind of i believe are born into the roles as uh, paul was saying there is no individuality they work as a collective one being but i think with a bit of self awareness we are able to add this bit of individuality and say maybe this is not what i want to do i'm not born into this role this role was given maybe i could choose something else right maybe in that case in the overabundance of resources instead of um as being obsessed with behaviors like pruning and stuff <laughs> we might be able to divert it to art which might seem equally meaningless yet is fueling humans curiosity or just the part of communication nonverbal communication yeah 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 go ahead go ahead benjamin what you got oh i was going to say uh the rat the rat idea was to kind of highlight where we it, at least from my perspective was kind of highlight where we are now as a society yeah. i i agree with you i think i think the you know the awareness is you know our ability to communicate especially in mass now um allows us a different level of appreciation to life to the world to to these things around us you know like you know it, art is one of the most foundational things to to our society these days i mean look at who are you know you can argue that sports are a form of art you can argue that you know ufc is a form of art you can argue that all of the you know all of the musicals and movies and music and all of that stuff those are pillars of you know what everybody grows up on now so i think i think you're absolutely correct in that our awareness breeds our our ability to kind of take that overabundance and resource it into something that's uh you know proactive for society yeah. uh and i think you know this level of communication especially these conversations like we're having right now i think this is where we foster the ideas foment the next iteration of these concepts of these ideals of these philosophies to implement into society whether that be locally regionally or globally potentially yeah those that's a great point and I, for me like i've been seeing a lot it doesn't take much to do some doom scrolling like i got to do is turn on tv or look at your computer or you know there just seems to be a lot of negativity out there right now 
that's always there. It's always been there. And it's very powerful because it can suck you in. But I wanted to talk about some ways. Is it possible that we are already at the next level of change, that maybe we're living in a better world if we just choose to live in it? You know, uh, a while back, last week, uh, Benjamin and I were talking about, you know, what could we do to make the world a better place? And we came up with this idea of, uh, well, I'll let Benjamin talk about it. It's called Gauntlet TV, man. Can you, can you tell, <laughs> fill everybody in on what Gauntlet TV could be? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, I think uh, the art of debate, uh, the intellectual conversation, the, the challenging of ideas is something that's been kind of lost on the greater level of society. And if we were to have some, you know, fun website like a gauntlet.tv, like you're throwing a gauntlet back in the day as a challenge. And then, you know, could you imagine just 100,000 people who, you know, they wanted to see somebody debate and their whole social media feed was just filled with pictures of gauntlets. So, you know, you could you could kind of there's some social compulsion that you could get people onto on the debate table and then you could actually have, you know, the hashing out of these ideas where as opposed to just the the projection of them onto society. Yeah. Well, imagine if instead of Monday Night Football, we had like Monday Night Debate with two people that were awesome. And then I thought for like a flip, maybe for the first part of the debate the two people would, you know, they would come out on their sides, but then maybe they should switch sides and someone that was vehemently against global warming should have to argue for global warming. You know, <laughs> it would force I think that's going to be a hard, a hard <laughs> uphill battle for a lot of the people who are you I know, agree. At, the, at the spear tips of these things. <laughs> I agree. I, I just thought it'd be a weird twist to try to force people to steal man the other person's argument. You know, it would mm -hmm. almost force like a, a camaraderie or some sort of thing in there. Why do you think we don't, why, what do you think... Why do you think, Kevin, that we have a lack of, of conscious discourse or a lack of real debates in society? <laughs> Ego, mostly. <laughs> um, attachment to ideas, emotions, and beliefs. So that's why a lot of times debates are a waste of time. Because all you get are two people that all they want to do is reinforce their existing beliefs and they're not actually open to being wrong and changing them. So unless we can figure out that, it's, that's a huge problem to solve. I don't know how we're going to have honest well, and level-headed communications. I think the idea behind that, the way that you kind of like overcome that little, that first hurdle is, is you have reasonable intellectual people who are, you know, not, not afraid to steal, man, any argument. Uh, and those are kind of the pillars of the debate circle, if you will. And then they would be the people who would debate, you know, people who are, you know, galvanizing these ideas in the public sphere, uh, you know, who, and then you actually get a true challenge of the idea. And obviously they're not going to steal man your, your argument, but everybody knowing that you can steal man any argument gives you the credibility uh, to be able to have that conversation and facilitate it. Problem, problem with uh, you know. Oh, we're lo we're losing you, Paul. Okay, it's kind of patchy. Try again. The problem with um that idea, you know, as as like a, a form of entertainment, is that most people who you know understand how to debate the rules of debate, are largely uninteresting to other people. <laughs> I agree. 
I agree. I, it was just a fun idea more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> but surely, Paul, there's a way to make it work. How do we do it, Paul? Come on. Well, I mean, the first thing is like what we've talked about with, you know, um, here is, uh, is that like when I was in high school, we had, um, you know, we had a debate club, you know, but those were largely filled with people that were uninteresting, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes those people were ridiculed in high school. I have to admit, I was one of the ones when the ridicule, you know, but what I learned as I got older and actually learned how to debate and, and learned what, you know, the higher and the lower forms of communication are that, man, I was really primitive way back then, you know? And um, so I think we begin by, you know, teaching people, you know, our, especially our kids in school and how to properly communicate and how to, mm. you know, how to not deflect, you know, and, and point fingers and, you know, and all these other different things that, you know, there's a, there's a pretty large segment of our society here in America that just loves to, you know, deflect off on other things and accept no responsibility for their words or their actions or any of that stuff. And so we have to go back to, you know, like teaching. It was like, George, you and I talked about this before. It was like, you know, you know, people who got a classical education actually learned this stuff. And, um, you know, and in and, and public school that I went to, I don't, and I know George went to, I don't know about the rest of you guys, but it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't like high on the priority list of teaching kids, you know, how they should behave and, and what to expect as, you know, what people expect of them as, as adults. And, and yeah, one of those is teaching kids how to properly communicate. I think that's a big thing because when you turn on, like, for instance, I, I'll, I'll go, I'll read certain articles, I'll read articles from certain, you know, publications or I'll, I'll listen to the news from, you know, certain broadcast companies and, and, you know, they are, constantly you know um using all of the lowest forms of communication to battle rouse and most people don't understand what's happening to them they get all emotional about it you know they just heard a bunch of sense that doesn't make sense to anybody who understands debate and communication but they heard it and you know and got all emotional about it and, and you know and so i think i think once we once we teach people how to um you know identify you know some of these lower forms of communication now when i say lower form of you know like ad hominem attacks red herring straw man arguments uni scientific arguments you know um there's a, a there's a whole list of them you know but once you learn to identify those things then you start to figure out to me like who's being more truthful and you know who's lying through their teeth well and i would say you know uh from we're kind of we're we're actually participating in it right now, but society is learning that for itself at this point. I mean, look at the just look at the podcasting atmosphere, uh, how it blew up, how many views these things get. You know, Joe Rogan's getting more views than any major news station could ever dream to hope to get. Right. And so now there is kind of this resurgence of, of these types of conversations of, of, of this type of dichotomy happening. Uh, and I think, you know, where the attention is going is kind of indicated uh, indicative of what people are feeling and desiring, uh, you know, and, and want from the information sources that they subscribe to. Yeah, I would agree. Rongo, what do you think about the the problem with debate right now 
I, I think they, the other people have mentioned it beautifully. It's uh, not being receptive to what the other person is saying, right? Um, the, the goal of the debate right now is to win. That's all. Mm. So it's, yeah, the win is going to be amazing. There is not, not going to be any progress with that, right? So the, it's not just being quiet for the one hour of the other person while they're debating, but also listening to them, right? Not, not being occupied with how am I going to uh, reply to this sentence? Oh, I got a great point for this, right? So rather than just be receptive of all the things and when you start talking, right, it's, the words start flowing through you. You don't need to prepare unless, of course, you know, you want to win. Because naturally, debates are something which has to come from our fundamental ideas, which should be honest. So I feel like no preparation should go into it. Like, this is what, if you wake me up at 2 a.m. and, you know, I'm in any mood, you ask me something, this is what I'm going to think about, right? And I feel like those kind of um, prerequisite to a debate would be, would be interesting. Other things are, as people said, people need to be honest, right? Yeah. I often wonder why. It seems to me like our language is unsatisfactory. And what I mean by that is that interpret translation means interpretation and when we're talking about different cultures we're not only interpreting languages we're interpreting backgrounds and cultures and if people can't thoroughly express themselves in their own language how could they possibly understand where someone from another language is coming from does anybody have any ideas on how to maybe bridge the gap between East and West or bridge the gap between the language barrier or the, does anybody have an, an answer to the insufficiency of language? <laughs> well, just ask I all think, the easy um... questions. Why don't you? <laughs> just throw that out there, you know? Yeah. Just go for it, Kevin. <laughs> well, Kevin, you've been all over, you've, you've done a lot of traveling and you know, you told me a story about being shipped to the kind of the back hills when you went to Japan, but you seem to find a way to communicate effectively when you were there. How, what did that look like from a, from an experiential point of view? I spent so many hours trying to figure out what people were saying only to realize that most people had nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That, that was that my was experience much. learning. Yeah. That might be cross-cultural too. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, you're like, oh, you guys are talking about the weather again. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I thought they were doing these these huge debates, super interesting topics, and then I, I tried for a year to understand what was going on in the morning staff meeting, and then one day I finally got it. And the discussions about whether we should turn on the heat in the school or tell everyone to wear sweaters because one parent complained. I was like, I'm glad I put in the thousand hours studying so I could be a part of this. <laughs> so yeah. Okay, I got an idea. Maybe, maybe the psychedelic experience is a is maybe language is insufficient because we need a better vehicle, and maybe that better vehicle is the psychedelic experience. It is more than a language; it is a it is something that can be beheld. Like you may not see the same things as me, but you feel a similar type of awakening. I know it's kind of blurry. But I think that there's a there there. Do you guys know what I mean? Like if you and I share a psychedelic experience, I could probably figure out by talking to you for an hour or two that I bet you this guy has had a psychedelic experience, be it, mm -hmm. you know, a form of dance or psilocybin or some type of a close death. 
but some sort of psychedelic experience. Do you think that there's promise in the psychedelics as a vehicle for communication? I 100% do, personally. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean? Sure. Um, because you're, to your point, it, it creates a different type of experience, a more visceral one. Um, but from like a, a physics perspective, I would describe it as you're just exposed to much more sensory data input mm. than you would normally be. And if you figure that that's going to be consistent across the board, now you're opening up people to just that many more uh, angles of communication, of, 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 of recognition, of uh, attenuation, of all these different abilities to make those connections that allow us to, to you know, to have these relationships in these, in these communities. What do you think? George, you know, oh, think it could drive further people further apart. Say you it think again, it would Paul? drive people further drive apart? People apart as, as far as communication goes, you know, I've, I've, I've had a lot of experimentation with psychedelics. I started when I was a kid. And, um, and, you know, I think it depends on the environment in which you're, you know, where you're doing the, the psychedelics. I think that, I think when people talk about, you know, coaching or, or, um, you know, having somebody there like an, a mentor, you know, situation to help, you know, guide people. Um, you know, I, I think that that's highly important, but I know people who, you know, I did, you know, psychedelics with that. I, I feel that, you know, communication wise, we went further apart. And I think it's all depends on, especially when you're self guiding in your trip, you know, what's, what, you know, what are the things that you're, you're thinking about? What's, where's your mind going? What are you, what are you dwelling on? Or, or, um, you know, so I think, I think you can go both ways. I think you could bring people, you know, in communication, like you're closer together. And at the same time, I think it can make people, you know, further apart. It's a good is that point. farther? Is that farther apart? Uh, a per, I, I, I would almost argue that it's more of a personal reflection. So when you when you go on that psychedelic experience and you look in the mirror, and you know if you look in the mirror and you don't like what looks back, I could definitely see how that would on the surface appear as a distancing of communication because now you're going into a, you know, that, that self-reflection and, and, you know, realizing the words you've said and the people you've hurt and all these things. And that might cause that, that seeming on, on the surface kind of, kind of movement apart. Uh, but is it actually like a less form of communication or you, is it just, you know, there's a wall between that current moment's communication Are you talking about like within the, you know, the actual experience itself? Right. Well, well like experience that you were mentioned where, where you, you because, felt that people went further apart. I mean, was that just them being self-reflective and, and going through their moment? And so they weren't able to, to communicate outwardly or, you know, do you think no, it was well, actually an aspect of the psychedelic experience itself? Right, an aspect of the psychedelic experience. Well, actually, you know, post-psychedelic experience. I mean, to me, you know, it's like you experience a, a whole, you know, myriad of, of, of emotions and, and thoughts you know, during a psychedelic experience. And it's, uh, some people are just strongly, more strongly rooted to their default mode than others. And 
though they are less pliable regardless of what psychedelic you know what psychedelics they're on um some people you know whether they're having a good trip or a bad trip will you know you know hang on to certain experiences that they had during their their psychedelic trip and focus more on that type of you know on whatever that was mm. um but as far as communication goes you know uh, what i view as as you know being able to bridge a communication gap you know either during a psychedelic experience or after a psychedelic experience largely dependent on you know the individual's experience you know some people man i, I have friends that you know, that I did psychedelics with and, and I don't know if it was, you know, if it was, um, you know, that they were reflecting, you know, looking in the mirror and not liking what they see and maybe felt some sort of shame or, you know, um, you know, about that. And so they became more distant, you know, um, mm. I don't, I don't know if, if, um, if what we're talking about is the same as far as communication goes and then actually physically, or emotionally distancing yourselves from other people that you've shared that experience with. Okay. I, I mean, yeah. So you're, you're talking more of the post experience. Post experience. Yeah. Okay. I mean, to me, it's like, if I'm viewing, you know, psychedelics as a medicine, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of weird things happen during, you know, can happen during, you know, a psychedelic experience. But to me, it's, it's, it's usually post experience. I've always found that, it's always kind of the when the point in when in which you're coming down from the experience is where I've done the most growth in my life. You know, it's never been like the peak experience. It's never been the ramp up and the peak. It's always been on the other side. You know, it's always been like you know the quiet times, the you know the you know the the majority of the you know if it was the fun or the real like in what people would call as an enlightening phase of the psychedelic experience. Um, is over is where I found that most of my thinking and most of my, um, you know, change to my default mode occurred is has been at the end of the experience. And then post experience is where, to me, that's where those thoughts and those changes that I made, you know, begin to show up. I wonder, is there a general consensus that even though you will experience a difficult time in a trip is the general consensus that you're glad that you had the experience. I think it's going to be highly dependent on the person. I've seen some people who've had some really bad trips. <laughs> yeah. yeah. True. It's true. Yeah. It's true. I mean, if you come into that thing as a very highly broken individual, there is a, a, a fair chance that you leave even more fractured. Yeah. If yeah. you're not able to put those pieces back together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, 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 like, how does that play out in the world of psychedelics today? I mean, like there's a lot of people that need help. And if, if they are, I, I think this is a pretty big gap in the world of psychedelics. There are people that are broken and if psychedelics are freely available, which they kind of are right now anyway, what's to stop someone from taking them and, and maybe flipping out and doing something crazy. Not a thing, man. Yeah, not, not, <laughs> not a thing. <laughs> But no, on the flip I think, side of that, I think yeah, uh, they're. No, I think if they're um, broken enough, with respect to psychedelics, I think there is a wall or a stop them from people. It's just I personally, when I see the world, it's um, more so 
they can be driven to other drugs but when there is there is something inherent with psychedelics which kind of i think if you do not want to take it you don't take it right i think that inner mechanism a defense mechanism kind of acts as the barrier so it doesn't matter if it's publicly available or not being yeah and then at the same time you know you look at all of the the festival drug use uh, you know uh, recreational drug use for things like that and i would i would say that there's quite a few people who get thrust upon a path without even knowing that they were going to go down the path uh I, which goes back to set and setting right and and also you know having that shaman that mentor that that guide uh if you're really serious about the journey i don't think you're going to come out of it with negative experiences however i don't think everybody's serious about the journey when they partake in it yeah that's true i i 100% agree i feel like uh, the term psychedelic even though might be given to the drug i it doesn't become a psychedelic at least based on how we use the term um it doesn't become a psychedelic if the set and setting are not proper it just becomes another drug that gets you high so for me psychedelic the first time i learned the meaning of the word it, i think i uh, i read somewhere psych means mind and delic means uh, opening or expanding right so if none of those mind expanding thing is going on it's not a psychedelic so it's just another drug right it's based on the situation it's going to become not a psychedelic so yeah yeah that's a good point kevin you're pretty quiet over there what are you thinking about i just agree with what is being said um uh, nothing to really add on top of that it's all about set and setting yeah i've you know i have i have had some situations where you know have you ever heard the have you ever heard the saying the best trips are the worst or the worst trips are the best trips like and I realize it takes a strong mind to do so, but sometimes I've been in some pretty deep water where I was scared. You know, I wasn't threatening myself or anything like that, but just some of the thoughts I had about who I am and who I wasn't and who I was never going to be. You know, it, there's some very deep water there where you, you don't know who you are. And while that can be scary, ultimately it became very rewarding because you know, I got good news and bad news. The bad news is I don't know who I am. And the good news is I don't know who I am, you know? And so I, I think that sometimes, not always, but sometimes the worst trips can be the best trips if you're willing to integrate it afterwards. And that may mean talking to somebody. That may mean keeping a journal. It may mean, you know, going to the library and studying. But I think that if you find yourself in a trip that is really bad, there's there's some real room to grow right there. Like that's a spot you need work at. And that's why you're stuck. There. That's why it's a bad one. It's because you haven't figured it out yet. But if you're willing to see it as something you need to work on, it can become one of the most f fulfilling experiences for you. Have you guys ever felt something like that? Yeah, I think it's a matter of degree. I mean, as Benjamin was saying before, there are people who have certain predispositions to perhaps psychotic break. And if they're in the wrong setting, that is going to tip them over the edge. And I don't know if there's any way you can argue that that's a good trip. But I myself have had very many unpleasant trips, which I would then say is good. For example, ayahuasca. I don't think I really enjoyed any of my ayahuasca experiences. <laughs> <laughs> like they were all painful, uncomfortable, but I felt great when it was over. But during it, I thought this is terrible. I wanted to end, but they were all good. So yeah, I do think there's it's a matter of degree. 
Do you see that as like, would you, I, I've done a little bit of reading like on some of, um, I think it may have been the Hopi tribe, but I'm not 100% sure. They have like the ordeal. So you're not really taking a hallucinogen, but maybe you're ingesting a substance that makes you feel like you're going to die. You feel so horrible, but then you don't die. And it's like, oh my God, I'm not going to die, you know? Or sometimes they'll have these things where like they, they dance until they almost pass out or until they do pass out. But it's this ordeal. It gives you the same sort of experience as a psychedelic trip. And it's psychedelic in its own way. Like you feel like you're going to die. And then when you don't die, you're so thankful that you have a new lease on life. Would you say that maybe some of your ayahuasca was more of an ordeal or? Um, yeah, that's ha definitely happened a few times, especially with the sweat lodge. Mm. where I did feel like it was, it was an ordeal and that I would, might not live. You know, for, then, people yeah, who, you go ahead. for people who may not have heard that story, would you mind sharing it again? Um, so, yeah, with ayahuasca, it's, there's a lot of it going, out, going around now. I guess it's become more and more popular in the last years. So, in my opinion, they're not right and wrong, but there are two ways that people go about it. And for me, the complete experience involves the sweat lodge, what they call the Temascal, which is a man-made sauna of some bendy wood that's covered with blankets. And then it's on the, it's dug into the earth and there's a little pit in the earth and it's very small. You basically have to crawl into it. It's not tall enough to stand in. And typically in these ceremonies they can cram anywhere from 10 to 20 people in this tiny space and you're pretty much touching each other you're very close together and one of the shamans i worked with he will do he'll do it two different ways he'll first you'll drink the ayahuasca in a separate location and you'll have that experience for a few hours and then you'll sort of cap off the experience by going into the sweat lodge for a bit but the second day, what he does, the night of the second day, is you drink the ayahuasca and then you go straight into the Temascal and you stay in there for three to four hours, about four rounds of 45 minutes each. And all of this is heightened because of the ayahuasca, but the experience is you're in a, you're in a claustrophobic setting. It's super hot. You're not permitted water. At the end of each round, you might get a sip or two of water. So you're experiencing like, you know, you feel dehydrated, you feel hot, you feel uncomfortable, you feel like you're suffocating, you can't breathe because the air is so full of steam and other people. And more than once, like pretty much every time I've done this, I have that feeling that I'm not getting enough air, I'm too hot, I'm not going to make it. And, and I had this experience of just... I couldn't do anything but surrender to, to the experience. And I literally one session, I think I spent almost all of it in the child's pose position on the ground. Like I couldn't even sit up. I didn't have the strength to even sit up because the heat would rise. Right. So the only way to kind of get through it is to stay low and process. You know, you're also processing stuff at, this, at the same time. You got whatever's going on with your ayahuasca experience. And it's just, it's a deeply humbling experience because what happened to me a couple times is I would actually get to that point where that fear, the fear kicks in and you just, I got to get out of there. I can't take this anymore. Like this is maybe going to kill me and starts to bring up fears of past medical conditions. Like, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And then 
I found every time I've done this, I find you find the warrior spirit within. And a lot of things assist that the setting you're singing powerful songs and these songs help you battle against this fear that arises and gives you that warrior within that comes forth. And there's, and something happens. It is, it literally is kind of a death and rebirth where at some point I said, whatever happens, happens, I surrender. And then this little thing comes up where I feel that power come up and I'm able to sit up again and I'm able to sing. And then I got other people singing and I'm looking at somebody next to me who's fighting through it. And I get inspiration from that person. And then we all build on each other and it's sort of a crescendo occurs and we all make that push together that we're all in it together. And it's just this beautiful shared experience. And then you come out of it like totally dehydrated, exhausted, emotionally, physically, mentally exhausted, literally crawling on your hands and knees out of this thing into the cool air and just being so thankful that you made it. And that, for me, that's the closest thing I found to what you're talking about, George, where it was like the ordeal of the near-death experience that you can actually make yourself. That's an awesome story. Like I've, I've never experienced it in a group setting like that. And I think that one reason, well, one of multiple reasons I wanted everybody here is like, I think everybody has a unique way or at least a unique story about doing it. Benjamin has done something that I've never heard anybody in my life go through. And I was hopeful, maybe you could share about your story about running, Benjamin. Sure. Um, well, it was actually right as I finished my book. Uh, I went and had this experience. I was down in the New Mexican desert and I decided that I wanted to have a vision quest and I had uh, a bit over an ounce of mushrooms available to me, but uh, I didn't want to do it, you know, just a, as a normal trip. And so what I did is I just ate and then I went and ran and I would come back and I would eat more and run and eat more and run. And I did this for three days straight. The first day I ended up with uh, completely sunburnt water blisters all over my skin the second day it, it healed uh and i actually haven't been sunburnt since uh doing this uh in you know i can sit out in the midday sun i go run in the midday sun every day and i don't i don't catch a burn anymore which is fascinating and i first was turned on to that from paul stamens uh mm. but you know so i i discovered a different way to have uh, you know a very a very physical uh, experience. And I ended up running like about on average, about 30 miles a day. And then I picked up ultra running since then just as kind of a hobby and it's fun. And, uh, but I've also now repeated this experience with some other people, um, some Guinea pigs <laughs> and uh, they've had similar experiences. Uh, you know, I've had people who, you know, 50 years old running up a mountain type idea. So, <laughs> yeah, it's That's fascinating awesome, to think about. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I'm coming with you one day. I don't know when, but I'm coming with you one day. And I, we'll make it happen. <laughs> yeah, we should all do it together. I'm definitely not doing that. <laughs> not doing that. It, well, it was the most, it was the most wonderful, liberating experience of my life. If that helps. What was no, the, no, like, I, I, yeah. what, so when you're running, like, it, it seems to me, like, hmm. you know, when I think of a trip, I think of seeing some closed eye visuals or even open eye visuals and some deep thoughts. 
what what goes through your mind when you're exercising at a high level like say around mile 15 like are you are what are you thinking about or what's going it's through your very, mind it was a very very wild experience because all of a sudden i my ability to breathe my ability to intake oxygen was just completely altered my thoughts were going a million miles a minute even faster than sitting you know in a dark room because i was moving forward and so as i was moving forward I was actually singing half the time after it really got going good just because I had that much energy as I was running up and down hills and all around the desert. Uh, and it was one of those things where it was just, it, it was transformative uh, just in, you know, my perception of what the human body was, my human body and what it was capable of. Uh, and it was just, it was everything that a, a, a heroic trip would be but it was just at a very heightened pace and it was glorious at the end of the day. On some level, I think if I think it may be possible to eat an ounce of mushrooms and run 30 miles without ever leaving your bed. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something to be said about that for sure. <laughs> I think I'd be done for the yet. trip. Yeah, right. That would be amazing. I, 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 what, what it makes me think about is that there's so many ways of changing our reality or utilizing a psychedelic substance that we haven't even thought about yet. And I bet if we looked back at literature, I bet if we looked back at some of the indigenous tribes, we would find different ways, be it a sweat lodge or be it an ordeal or be it running or Paul, what what say you about the native Hawaiians and ordeals and rituals? Well, they've been blown apart in the last 150 years. Um, native Hawaiian or rituals, I mean, they're pretty much non-existent these days. You know, I mean, the culture... You know, the Hawaiian culture. Well, I mean, I'm not going to want to say that. I mean, it's, it exists here and there. But, um, you know, the thing with Hawaiian native rituals is that, you know, there's hula and there's, um, you know, there's chanting. And then, you know, then there's, you know, there's food. But, you know, none of those things were written down. You know, Hawaiians didn't have a written language. And those things were shared. And, you know, during when the missionaries came here, they, you know, they put a big, you know, axe right down the middle of the sharing of, of uh, you know, rituals and culture and language and, and all the rest of that stuff. Um, you know, there's been a resurgence. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know if you're if you're asking me how it pertains to, like, you know, a hallucinogenic experience. Um, but, what about yeah? What about like? Are there some ceremonies with kava? Kava is like a slightly psychoactive ingredient, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know the, you know when, you know we did we had a kava ceremony when when my daughter passed away. Um, and you know they it's you know they use it at you know um, baby luau's and and then of course you know when when people pass and it's more of like a like a ritual it's more like a like a religious thing um um but you know the the kava the hawaiians call it ava 
um, is um, it's really not something that's that's practiced a lot anymore in in you know Hawaiian society. There's you know Hawaiians have kind of moved on. You know, it's been my experience that they moved on from from ava, um, and it's and and have gone towards you know other things like you know, crystal meth. <laughs> Quite a jump, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a heck of a jump. <laughs> but you know, but as far as like, um, you know, Hawaiian, you know, Hawaiians, um, you know, they they weren't really into you know using that as 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 far as a as a you know kind of like a pathway drug. It was more you know chanting and hula provided you know that for them you know more. Um, especially chanting, you know, there's, you know, you talk to Hawaiians and, you know, they'll tell you there's, there's something, you know, psychedelic about chanting, you know, um, and that, you know, the, the, the breathing and the vibration and, you know, and the sounds that will open up, you know, different, you know, psychological pathways, um, um, you know, more than anything, really. Ranga, what do you think? Well, uh, coming India, from, right, Ranga? Yeah, from coming from India, like Ranga, reading the mantra singing. Yeah. What's that? Oh, oh, what, Ranga, what do you think? Coming from India, like if you yeah. read the Upanishads and things like that, that is a psychedelic experience in itself. And I'm yeah. wondering, like you and I have had some really good conversations, and it seems to me like the East has just this deep understanding of the psychedelic. At least to me, I mean, well, how 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 would you exp why do you think that is? Like it seems to me that India, especially, you know, when you look at the ashrams and all these different types of people there, and the idea of soma, and you know, just so many great stories. What what say you about the psychedelic experience in India? I think psychedelic experiences are found throughout the world. Yeah, I think I think we are existing in this phase where. You can see abundance of knowledge present in India, maybe. I'm not sure what we perceive, but more on the knowledge side. Uh, there seems to be a lot of knowledge, not, not actual practice, because if that was the case, I don't think I would be in Canada, right? <laughs> and <laughs> it's just that we are, we are in the time phase to witness knowledge being there, practice being kind of spread to different parts of the world, different same substances with different uh, connotations, different meanings, re-explored. And, yeah. What about the yoga tradition in, in, in... Kevin, you might be able to answer this one, too. You've, you do a lot of breath work, and I think you're familiar with some of the, the yoga traditions. What can Do you think you could reach a psychedelic state? I mean, I guess, I guess they have kundalini, which is sort of a... You can reach a, a, sta a state, a psychedelic state in that particular area. Do you know anything about that? I'm not familiar with Kundalini. I've tried it. It's not my cup of tea, but you can for sure access states like that because they do work with the breath a lot. And I was just thinking earlier, just listening to all your talk about Benjamin's talk and about the mushrooms and running, just like how many different modalities that humans have discovered to try to transcend, I guess, transcend the physical or have that divine connection. And that's one of the reasons I'm interested in, in, in yoga and, and that tradition, because there are so many modalities there. And I have 
experience something similar to a psychedelic trip with holotropic breath work for one and a couple of other types of breathing it's not quite as intense as as something like you know a mushroom trip or an ayahuasca trip but it's close and i can imagine that if you were really disciplined with it and you did it a lot you could for sure get to that kind of state if you if you stay in prolonged meditation afterwards and I think it's interesting to study the history of, of, uh, of Indian culture because you basically have a culture that spent thousands of years trying to figure out consciousness. And although I don't understand a lot of the texts I read, I find it fascinating just how they attempt to label and quantify all these different altered states of consciousness, like in between waking consciousness and enlightenment they have like all these different words for like jhanas. very specific yeah. jhanas samadhi nirbeja samadhi and there's like three different four different types of samadhi names and then yeah. it's like quite amazing that the, you have a society that actually sat down and tried to like figure that out and actually label it and categorize it for thousands of years and you know so hopefully we can hang on to that and develop it but i feel like we have, we're too, you need to, you need to be a culture with a, a shitload of free time uh, to be able to, to figure that stuff out. And all we're doing is making ourselves busier and busier. Yeah. Ranga, what do you, do you know about those different, do you know a little bit what Kevin was talking about, about those different ways yeah, to describe I've, consciousness? I've read about it and meditation also, they mention all these things. I have no understanding what these labels actually mean. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's quite interesting with the time they had, uh, they were able to explore consciousness, right? It wasn't just um, running after survival and then a bunch of concepts building around survival. It was something beyond that, I feel, just not restricted to the particular lifetime. Uh, but yeah, coming back to those uh, terms, I have no idea of what's <laughs> happening in those terms. Yeah. <laughs> What do you, do you think that there's a certain type of goal? Like, have, do you think that there's a certain type of thing that happens to everybody when they take psychedelics? I, like, is, is it a way to help us evolve? I don't know if everybody's familiar with Terrence McKenna's stoned, stoned ape theory. Yeah. Are you familiar <laughs> yeah. with that? Yeah. I, I pretty much kind of see it that way because for, for me, uh, after psychedelics, I was able to realize knowledge was nothing more than paying attention. So if one is able to be there without having thoughts, just with the process, I think there's something magical that's happening, which we will never be able to comprehend yet that that's happening, right? Um, I read these two, three things in the last two, three days. It was interesting uh, how the uh, Nobel Prize winner who designed PCR test he said he couldn't have designed it without the without LSD. And there are bands that have formed just, we weren't that much into music, you know. <laughs> we had this uh, psychedelic experiences and then we just thought our life should be in music and and it just happened. And uh, they're going to become bigger bands. And all of this originates, I feel like the whole idea of creativity happens when we don't try to go after something. And to let it be, I think psychedelics puts there puts the brake on your thought, it puts the brake on wherever you're rushing and like, it's just there. Why are you not seeing it, right? <laughs> like, I think the, the magic is happening throughout everywhere, 
right? It's just energy and it's just transferring. And that's, for me, it's magic. We are not able to perceive it in our ordinary sense. As we, we, we are busy, we are not able to perceive it. So all these techniques or psychedelic drugs would be to get us to stop and see for what it is. I just had a ridiculous thought. Why stop with the stoned ape theory? Why don't we have stoned dolphins? Let's get some dolphins high. And see if they play chess. Well, they get they get high uh, voluntarily. They go suck on pufferfish. Yeah, I, I think they already like the neural pathways work. Say what? They already they're maybe predisposed to this experiment then. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was John Lilly who said who you have to take copious amounts of ketamine to talk to the dolphins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> copious amounts. What a what a wonderful measure. Yeah. <laughs> have you guys i haven't i have i've read a little bit of john Lilly, but not a whole lot but he's done some interesting stuff where he goes into like uh you know the uh the isolation tanks and does huge doses of ketamine i think he also did a lot of ketamine and swam with dolphins and thought he could communicate to them i think he did work for the navy to be honest with you have you guys heard about that yeah i heard about that what okay. can you yeah what what was he doing there benjamin i uh, I I think a lot of that's still redacted, <laughs> actually. Um, so who knows exactly what he was doing? But you know, they uh, the Navy was very intent on using dolphins for torpedo delivery, for uh, reconnaissance, for and, and they were successful in a number of instances. Uh, so I know he was a part of that program. Um, the the absolute details I'm not too familiar with, uh, but. Yeah, I think, you know, dolphins go off and get high just in general. Uh, and, you know, when we're looking at all the ancient cultures, uh, like in Japan, you know, there's a temple where it, there's a whole bunch of mushrooms erected in stone. You know, there's, uh, you know, we have, you touched on the Soma, you know, there's the eliciting mysteries back in ancient Greece. It, it's, you know, every, when, whenever we're looking at ancient history in our, in our past cultures, there seems to, if you look at the right places, there definitely seems to be an aspect of psychedelic use that kind of pushed forward society. I mean, you know, half of half the world's population on their iPhone wouldn't have it if Steve Jobs didn't take LSD, right? Yeah. You know, that was his, that, I mean, he came up with, you know, all of those ideas on LSD. In uh, many other CEOs and founders and things like that, uh, through my just entrepreneurial experience, I've had a lot of personal conversations with people who, you know, like, yeah, we were really struggling, couldn't figure out the solution. We went to Burning Man. <laughs> and all of a sudden they come up with this magnificent solution, uh, elegant solution to the problem. And they were able to, you know, grow it into a multi-million dollar company. So no, I, 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 I no. oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I think sometimes I think that uh, for me, psilocybin, I, I believe it's working on the, the, on some level, it is allowing us to communicate with the planet itself. And I know that may seem a little crazy. So let me try to explain. Like I've taken a lot of mushrooms and like, I, I always end up noticing more things, especially in my garden. Like all of a sudden I'm like, wow, it's so weird how that plant always opens up a flower, like at that 45 degree angle. You know, in a weird sort of way, when you begin to notice that stuff, it's almost like its own language. And I may, this may be a stretch, but it kind of seems like that plant's talking to you. You know, I read a book by Jeremy Narby called The Cosmic Serpent. And in that book, 
he's an anthropologist that goes down and he's spending time with his tribe. And the, uh, the tribesmen tell them like, oh yeah, look, we talk to the plants. And the majority of the anthropologists went, these people are crazy and they left, but he stayed. And he asked them, he says, how is it that you talk to the plants? And I was like, oh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. And so they, he shows me, he says, I'll show you. So they, they walk out into the jungle a little bit and there's this like a, a white or a, a green snake with two white dots on its on the back of its head. And he goes, that's a very poisonous snake. If it bites you, there's a good chance you're going to die unless you get the antidote. And he's like, but see this plant over here? And he shows him a plant and the, the leaf on the plant looks exactly the same shape as the snake's head and it has two white dots on the side of it. He goes, you see that? That's the plant telling us it's the, it's the cure for the snake. And he goes... Oh, the plants talk to you. You know what I mean? And so I think on some level, be it just making us more observant or maybe we take in more information when we can use mushrooms or other types of psychedelics. I believe that it's a different form of communication and that, you know, somewhere along the lines, we've lost that way to communicate with ourselves, with the planet, with our environment. And I, I believe the psychedelics are a type of resurgent for that. It also gets me thinking about other animals. Like when I, I recently saw this thing on squids or cuttlefish, one of the two. And, you know, when they communicate, they, they change colors, they change textures and their, their, their whole body is communicating. And in a way we do that as humans, but we don't really pick up on it. Like, have you ever like talked to a girl and all of a sudden you see her blush? Like, oh, this girl must think I'm cute or something like that. Or, you know, maybe you blush or maybe you get goosebumps the same way the octopus or the cuttlefish, they use their skin to communicate to the other cuttlefish like that's something our language doesn't really have but we as humans have it like our mm -hmm. texture changes our color changes but we t we tend only the most skilled among us really factor that in when we're communicating maybe that could be a way to help us communicate more effectively and efficiently or maybe that could be worked into language maybe there's a way to put texture in a language you know maybe there's a way to use some sort of um you know, honorifics or something like that that could be used as a texture or something like that. But I think that, that those are all things that I think of when I'm on mushrooms, but, and I would never think about those if I didn't take mushrooms, so. <laughs> I, I agree with you on the part that uh, communication uh, is happening, right? And uh, psychedelics, I think, helps humanity as such, right? Now, in two ways, right? Um, if external communication is, uh, am I cutting? Is it okay now? Better now. You're okay now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think uh, when it's trying to improve our external communication that drives the progress and if it drives the internal communication, right? Each, each second, our body is trying to talk to us. We are, we are not the body yet. We are, you know, we are aware of it. So based on our ideas and stuff, the body is reacting to that. You know, you're going to hear a statement rather than reacting to it. You listen to your body. The body is going to react to that. Oh, I'm going to get angry. How, how dare you talk something against it? So that inward communication, if it's strengthened by psychedelics, right? So we are able to listen to us, our emotions or whatever sensations, right? And not react. Oh, it's just communicating with me. Same, same as the leaf with the two white dots, right? It, that communication is happening over term of um, as over time as evolution, and this is happening, you know, in a matter of seconds based on our ideas and based on situations which we interact with. And the second part, it's I think that's where psychedelics are key for mental health. It's just people are able to be themselves and see their own emotions as something that they don't. It's not my thoughts. It's not my emotions. 
right? I think it gives them an opportunity to think it uh, as a way of communicating rather than, oh, I'm responsible for my emotions. Oh, I have this intrusive thought. I have to stop the thought rather than that thought can be there. Like I, I get a lot of thoughts, you know, my partner and I talk about how many times, um, you know, we get frustrated, let's say with the dogs. So like, I'm just, can you stop screaming? I'm going to take your tongue out. It doesn't mean I'm going to do that, but it's, it's there, right? I, I'm not sad about it because at this point, maybe due to experience, I've had the start over a thousand days, maybe. So it's now an usual thing, but even otherwise, right? It's just a form of communication, which we don't need to react. We, we have a limited amount of resources and we can choose to pay better attention based on if we know that we have a choice. I think awareness is an important word in that conversation. Mm. Yes, awareness. Um, you know, uh, I, something that psychedelics are very, very great at is raising awareness, whether that be from just the, you know, the physical sensations, the synesthesia, the interoception, the ability to process through emotions, uh, you know, all in a detached form, um, you know, just having that state of awareness uh, is, and you know, that's what meditation is. That's what holotropic breathing is. That's what, you know, uh, I, I'm a fan of Tumo breathing. Uh, like, uh, have you guys heard of Wim Hof, the Iceman? Oh, yeah. The guy who walked up Everest in a pair of shorts. Um oh, yeah, you know, he uses that Tumo breathing, uh, a, a variation of it. And you could go, and now I can too, I could go sit outside in a snowstorm and I'll start steaming simply because of that, that, that breathing takes you to a point of interoception where you're able to control your autonomic nervous system because you're aware of it. And, uh, you know, uh, all of these processes that we're talking about build our awareness which increases our ability to communicate george i like what you said about the psilocybin being kind of a link between us and nature because i've had that experience as well too that i was communicating directly with some old natural entity through the mushroom and it makes sense too when you think about what mushrooms do in nature like normal mushrooms there's a great I didn't know this before I listened to this, but there's a great episode of the Radio Lab podcast that came out, I think, four or five years ago, where they talk about the mycelium in the forest floors and how there's this network of very thin mycelium connecting everything, all the trees, all the plants, and the ecosystem there. So, biological extension, I like to think of the South South mushroom as being that connector for us to nature. I, I agree a lot. It, and it's even more so than just the connections. They actually transfer resources from individual fauna. Yeah. So they'll yeah. actually take, you know, they'll transfer resources and they communicate. They've actually, they've actually recorded the frequencies of these things too, of yeah. uh, these big mycelial networks. And so they have communication channels and then they also have resource sharing channels. So they'll take something that the maple tree is producing in abundance and put it to the bush and transfer it through that mycelial network because the bush needs it to thrive. I so would very yeah. add this point about how um, during the last mass extinction where the dinosaurs were wiped out and all the bigger land creatures were wiped, um, mushrooms were the so they they survived because of their underground nature and in some sense uh, mushrooms are, are seen as the mother of the current uh, chain of evolution let's say right so that way they kind of 
show you everything they act as and now you know you're trying to you're trying to discover so many mushrooms being able to uh, let's say digest plastics or just pretty much replace all the things that we thought could not be replaced we had to have non organic substances so yeah it's been a long time of evolution helping us with a lot of different things we just not become aware of it yet going back yeah sometimes sometimes i you know when we think about the the asteroid or the the meteor that took out the dinosaurs you know doesn't it kind of seem like maybe they they say that that's when that's when humans like well when the small human type animal be, began to flourish is when that happened but might it's not too far of a stretch to think that spores if you listen to francis crick or if you look at panspermia it's not too much of a stretch to think that maybe those spores came from space and it came on the meteorite. All of a sudden, you know, that kind of dovetails with Terrence McKenna's idea of stoned ape theory. Here comes this asteroid, boom, kills out the dinosaurs. But now these spores are on the earth. It's almost like it's the mushroom is the alien. Maybe it's taken over the human. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to, I want to address this book right here. There's a great book called the genius plague and it's by David Walton. David Walton is a, uh, he works for like skunk works and he is like a incredible scientist. And he's also probably one of the greatest science fiction writers that for some reason people don't talk about it. But in this book, The Genius Plague, he talks about this guy that goes to South America and he eats a type of mushroom that's it's very similar to that type of cordyceps that the ants eat. And it gets into the ant and then the ant, cl the, the ant climbs the tree and it explodes out of the ant. And it are you guys familiar with that type out of, of its head? Yeah. Out of its yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So in this book, he says that mushrooms, and I, he's kind of alluding to magic mushrooms, that they, they are like a, um, it's like a symbiosis. So when you ingest them, they become part of you the same way. And then they begin to grow in you. And he gives this idea and it's a science fiction book, but he, he goes through like all this neurochemistry about how it helps heal the brain. And like, he just goes super in depth. Like you would expect an engineer from skunk works to go in depth. Makes me start thinking like, dude, what does this guy know? But anyways, I wanted to bring up the book. I hope you guys all get a chance to read it. It's called the genius plague. And uh, I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody who might read it, but it's well worth your while. So on that point, you know, it, it's really interesting. You know, we have a whole fungal system inside our body. That's typically pretty malnourished. In fact, our whole nervous system is, is fungal-based, right? I didn't know um, that. Yeah, yeah. So we're a combination of all these things that have been on this planet for quite a while. And, you know, we have, we have pieces from parasites that, are, that have been incorporated into our DNA. We have chunks from viruses that infected the populace from certain periods of time. All these things have kind of made an interplay into who we are as a human. But we have a fungal system as well. In that fungal system, uh, you know, um, so one of the things that it does that I just found out about this about a year ago, uh, Brett Weinstein talked briefly about it, um, but there's this, there's this thing called ionophores. And ionophores are what carry electrical charge between the cell and the rest of the body. The only two things that grow ionophores in the human body are fungus and bacteria. And so we have specific parts of our fungal system that, that grow these ionophore, ionophoric systems in our body that create uh, greater energy transfer between our cells and all the surrounding tissues and all the, in, you know, the, in all the surrounding cells. 
Uh, so there's a lot to be said from just the biochemistry perspective of, you know, our relationship to mushrooms. And then you look at it is, you know, mushrooms are also the only thing that inhales carbon or uh, inhales oxygen and exhales carbon dioxide in the, in kind of the plantish kingdom, if you will. Um, you know, so they're much more uh, akin to us than they would be to, you know, your average fauna. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I getting back full circle, a root system looks a lot like the neural network in your brain. You know, if you, if you just look at like the fMRI versus, you know, pick your root ball system. And if the, if the mycelium is connecting and strengthening all those particular gateways and pathways, you know, why wouldn't it do the same thing for an organism outside the ground that it does for an organism inside the ground? Like, I, I really think that we're going to start to see a lot of incredible science come. The more we investigate, the more we begin to see, I think once we start getting through the trials of um, PTSD, I think you're going to see it work really well with like autism and, you know, I don't want to jump the gun or cause anybody to get in trouble with research or whatever, but I really think that there is a long, I think I, why not? I mean, if it's healing the brain in certain ways and we know that there's some sort of CBD oil that helps with autism, I think it's well worth investigating the, the effects of psilocybin on autism. You know, it, it seems like well, a no brainer. Well, sure. I mean, you're, you're getting a uh, neurogenesis whenever you're yes. ingesting psilocybin. Yes. So, yes. you know, that alone is enough to try to explore for, you know, use it as, as an exploration tool, as an experiment for any sort of neurological disorder or disease or what have you. Cause that's, it's one of the only, I, I don't even think there's anything in pharmacology that does anything close to that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's the only, it's the only substance that we're aware of that promotes this type of neurogenesis. I would, I would, I would think too, like I, I've been experimenting with like a, I'm big on supplements and I'm big on um, experimenting. And of course I don't, I try to be as responsible as I can, but I think there's something to be said for taking like a growth hormone along with psilocybin. I think it's like a, it's like a steroid for the continued growth of neurogenesis. You know, like if you, if you're so, if you are secreting G, uh, HGH and on top of that, creating new neural pathways, like I, whenever I take psilocybin now, I'll take like 20 milligrams of like MK677, which is a SARM. And I, I can, in my opinion, I, listen, I'm not a scientist and maybe people shouldn't do this, whatever, but I mean, I have found with my journal and my subjective ideas that it works amazing. <laughs> well, you know, uh, that's kind of, if you look at how HGH is, when it kicks off in the body, you know, it's usually when you're doing like heavy lifting or, or right. highly intense workouts right. type things like that. So from my experience uh, perspective, you know, I, I concur. Yeah. Um, you know, putting yourself under that physical stress in having that type of uh, concoction of environment created in your body is a different animal. Yeah, I agree. Paul, you're pretty quiet over there, buddy. Are you still with us? Yep. Just listening. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what what do you think, Paul? What if you had to choose a favorite psychedelic? What would you what would be your choice? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
you know, for me, psychedelics, well, when I was young, it was available. But as I got older, it, was, it became like, you know, what did the occasion call for? You know, what, what are we doing there? You know, so I, don't, I don't know if I really have like a, a I favorable. I can you. Yeah, Paul's breaking up for me too. Yep, you're breaking up on us, buddy. You look closer. Sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if I really have a favorite one. It's it's more like, um, you know, what are we doing? What's the occasion? What are we, you know, what's happening here? And then, you know, and then 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 choose the most appropriate one. Yeah, it's kind of like and a you, sword. My breaking up. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah, um, I don't know if you guys caught that, but for me, I don't have a favorite. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, what are we doing? You know, am, am I going to be by myself? Am I going to be with other people? Are we, you know, what, what, what's the purpose here? So then, you know, you, then you, you, you pick the most appropriate one. Have you ever given your bees psilocybin? What do you think would happen? No, I've never given bees psilocybin. It's interesting, <laughs> though. I mean, I don't. I you know, I've I've taken psilocybin, you know, honey, <laughs> but mm. but never. That's the popular thing in Costa Rica. All of a sudden, right at the right time of the year, you'll see everybody with these little tubs of honey <laughs> and a whole bunch of mushrooms marinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but no, I've never I've never given them. I've never. I've given honeybees, you know, clothidinin and, you know, imidacloropine and all kinds of nasty stuff, but I've never given them psychedelics. I think we should, I, bet, I think we should document that. I, want, I bet you it would be, I bet you we could learn something. They did that with spiders, didn't they, back in the day? They did. Yeah. I don't, I don't, what, do you remember what the results of that were? Uh, if I recall, it was the weed one had, it was pretty similar to a normal web. And the LSD one had a whole lot of intricacies and it was still a pretty functional web. And then they did things like cocaine, heroin, PCP, Caffeine. and stuff like that. And, and mm. they were all just, the webs were trash. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to have that... to try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it would change the behavior of the hive. I mean, they're already, if we, if, if some of the things we were saying about the mushroom bringing people closer together or something like that, I wonder if it, I don't like, how would the hive become even more functional? Or do you, I guess you would start with a hypothesis. My hypothesis would be that giving psilocybin to bees would cause the hive to be more productive. What do you think, Paul? Man, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if, uh, well, first of all, you got to deliver it to them. Right. And mm -hmm. then, um, and then, you know, you, it's the results would only be within the hive itself. It would be really hard to determine, you know, whether or not they were actually being more productive. If, if they were, if they were, you know, collecting more pollen or if they were collecting better pollen, or if they were collecting more nectar different types of nectar it'd be really difficult to um you know that i guess right. it would be you you could really see it what would be interesting is because they use honey you know though just because they eat it doesn't mean that they're going to process it you know they mm. may store it 
they may use it to feed to, um, you know, to brood. They may, they may use it to, you know, to do other things. So it would be interesting to see what the effect of, of the, maybe they would build some really outrageous honeycombs. I don't maybe know. the honey would be psychoactive. Is that a possibility? I, you know, that's a possibility. Isn't yeah. there isn't there some bee species? I, uh, I think I it's in it Asia Turkey. that yeah. ha- or, or something like that that had that creates psychoactive honey. Psychoactive. I've heard of it. I, I've heard of it. Heard I'm of not. That. Um, you know, I know that. You know, one of the big things you know five years ago in the bee world was manuka honey. You know, that came mm-hmm. out of New Zealand, and people were talking yeah, about yeah. all the medicinal properties that manuka honey provided. But I've never heard of, um, you know, any honey. Well, you know, here's what I do know. Like, bees will actually forage on stuff that is, you know, that is poisonous to people. Mm-hmm. And then they will make honey out of that. And, um, you know, for a long time, people were saying, like, you know, over here in Hawaii, we have fireweed. And it's, you know, it's pretty toxic. Um, but honeys, uh, honeybees love it. And they'll mm-hmm. get on it and feed on it and then what people are saying is like you shouldn't eat the honey because it's because it's it's toxic but i have some friends that keep bees up the mountain where there's a lot of honeybee where there's a lot of um fireweed and they claim to get kind of a you know like a kind of euphoric experience when they're eating the honey you know maybe Hmm. a slight you know um poisoning you know slight toxicity in their system that's you know, that's making them feel a certain way. I believe that. I wouldn't doubt that. Yeah, I just had Jamie pull this up. Uh, it says, Nepalese. <laughs> <laughs> Hallucinogenic honey from Nepal is rare. It's not as sweet as traditional honey is. It's also more reddish in color. However, the biggest difference between this type of Nepalese honey and the regular variety is the effect. Hallucinogen- is the effect. Hallucinogenic honey has on those who eat it when you eat small amounts of this honey you can experience dizziness and euphoria an excessive dose of mad honey can produce hallucinations while some people value the mad honey experience others face severe side effects so it doesn't say why but it definitely says that there's something there i I would imagine it's what they're feeding on right paul probably yeah or it could be you know like i make mead lots of Mm. it and you know that's fermenting honey and there's Mm -hmm. You know, mead's a lot different than any other alcohol I've ever had in that it's got a, you know, the euphoria effect is high, you know, when you drink mead. And so it could be, you know, it could be, you know, something that is seasonal that gets into the beehive that maybe begins to ferment the honey. And then so when they take it, you know, it's it's, you know, it's more of an of an alcohol, you know, than than I mean, who I'd have to I'm going to I'm going to but I'm going to read into that. I'm going to figure that out. Um. But that, you know, honey um, fermenting in a beehive is, you know, not outside the realms of possibility. It happens. And, um, and some people, you know, bad beekeepers will take honey before it's ready, will harvest honey before it's ready. And therefore, you know, their honey will begin to ferment, uh, um, ferment you know, pretty quickly. And... Um, you know, I mean, we all have experience of eating foods that are fermented and, and, and drinking beverages that are, have been fermented. And it's, you know, can be euphoric and it could be make you sick, you know, but there's definitely an effect there. 
Yeah, it's fascinating to think about. Gentlemen, I am having a blast. I have a, some, a dinner to go to, but I wish I could keep talking to you, man. This is really fun. I really enjoyed it. What do you guys think? That's fine. Yeah, good time. Yeah, yeah I loved it. Oh, you yeah. Got it. So why don't we start? Thank you. We'll, yeah, start around. Thank Kevin, you, what, tell, us, tell us where we can find you and what you got coming up. No, I just want to thank you, George, for doing the very difficult job of moderating five different people talking and trying to keep everybody on track. That's not easy. So it's yeah. easy with thank you guys. You thank you. Of course. Yeah, uh, of course. My website, kevinholt.me. You can find everything there if you want to check me out. And Kevin's wrote an amazing book. I, if people are listening to this or you're watching, young, successful, and miserable, and uh it's an awesome book. There's a lot of work you can do in there. So it's a book you can not only read, but that you can work with. And I think it's awesome. And you did a great job on it. And I'm looking forward to the next one coming out. You said you might have a, a semi date for that one in the next couple months. Nah, I never know how long <laughs> it's going to take. <laughs> Ain't that always happens. Yeah. No, nice. well, I'm excited to I'm excited to see that you're working on something because you're a really good writer and a really good person and I enjoy talking to you. So thank you. Thank you, George. Absolutely. Benjamin, what do you got going on, buddy? Where can people find you? What's on deck for you? And uh uh BenjaminCGeorge.com is the home for all my projects and efforts. Uh book no absolutes for sale on the website, Amazon. Um and I'll be hosting a podcast here at the end of September with uh, George as my first guest. And I would love to invite the other three here uh, <laughs> to be guests on the podcast as well. Absolutely. Yes. They'll make great guests. I think uh, I was, yeah, I was going to, yeah, I maybe um, Benjamin's got some awesome ideas about the Terra Libre project. I, I wanted to get into it, but we, I ended up going over a little bit of time and um, I don't, I don't think a short amount of time would do it justice. But uh, but do you, I don't know. Do you want to talk about it? What do you think? Uh, I'll give the ten thousand foot. Yeah, please do. Please do. Uh, essentially, it's a it's a lifelong passion project. Well, fifteen year long passion project. Uh, the idea is to merge sustainability and technology to solve societal level problems that we're currently facing. Paul, you've got a friend that does. I was ju I just thought about this right now. Who's your friend that is working on alternative energy? The guy that had the radio show. Oh, my friend Josh. Yeah. Josh, we should get Josh. We should. Uh, I'm gonna. I'll send you Benjamin stuff, and you can send it to Josh. I think he'd be a good fit for that. But um, yeah. I, Benjamin and I have talked a little bit about it, and it's it's kind of one direction I wanted to go in when we talk about parallel structures. You know, it's about building a system where each individual helps with but doesn't necessarily take profits from the other individual you know and it, like i said it, it's how, how else would you flesh it's, that out is that a good way to describe it well i mean so it, it's a very complex model because it's a it's a communal model um so the idea would be that it's it's a network system where the individual is the ultimate product and the idea behind that is each individual would have their it removes all of the, the barriers of entry into the market for, you know, like starting an LLC, getting a website, getting all of this stuff. And it'll just allows people to focus on the arts, the goods, the services that they're going to offer. Uh, that network system is incorporated into a corporate structure so it can compete in the marketplace of the world. 
uh and then the and then there's some uh there's a it's a much larger conversation but the idea is is that you have a, a meritocracy combined with a democracy because you have a one vote one person system at with the crypto network background uh and then it it's it's kind of all embroiled into a corporate structure to complete in the wider marketplace of the world which doesn't mean anything but <laughs> in a longer conversation it does start to make a little sense yeah, yeah I, mean, <clears throat> I need acid for that one <laughs> well i think that i think that uh if if we if you could see some of the 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 maps as far as imagery and you could read the business plan it would make much more sense i I should have yeah, had some of that stuff ready, and then I could have I could have made it a better. Made it yeah, a well, better... next Sunday I should have yeah. a, a whole slew of infographics and stuff okay. that I can send. I can send out at least a little write up. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome, Ranga man. I love talking to you, man, and I I really admire the insight that is totally different than mine, man. And you always have like a super awesome, super awesome um, joke. I got a, I got a guest right here, guys, Griggs. 420 good friend of mine he is um i'm gonna have him on the show this guy he's, he's probably one of my favorite artists in hawaii griggs if you're listening to this maybe post i don't know if you can post a picture in the chat griggs but if you can try so griggs is one of us griggs is he's definitely big on the psychedelic scene and he takes it to a whole nother level he's been taking a lot of underwater pictures and in like if you've ever seen a picture of a wave Imagine it magnified. And he he has like a, a set, a set of pictures that when you look in the wave, you can see faces in the wave. And not like, not just faces that you imagine, but like up close and faces that look like they're smiling back at you. The picture is psychedelic in itself because it's like the wave is smiling back at you. I'll send you guys all a picture of it, but he, super awesome guy and one of the best artists, I think, in Hawaii. Uh, I'm going to have him on here and he'd be a great person for your podcast as well. But yeah, what's up, Griggs? I love you, buddy. So Ronga, what else, what, what do you got going on right now? What are you excited about and where can people find you? They, people can find me on LinkedIn, Rangarajan. So it's easier to reach me there. Um, I haven't uh, found what ways I'm going to contribute in psychedelics. I think, as I said last time, right now I'm just taking it easy, jolly and, uh, gonna set up a podcast uh the last podcast kind of gave me the motivation to you know have my things there are so many uh things we can talk about issues and uh, i feel like it's just putting your voice out there for someone who might need it at that point so i feel like i've had that uh during my phase of questioning being scary the initial scary phase right uh, i don't know which which path you're gonna go how you're gonna create your own path or is it safer to walk and at that time, you know, you could hear someone say that, yeah, 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 do not worry, you know, as scary as it can be, you can, you can question anything. So that's, that's the idea behind the podcast and trying to start with cultural and traditional, tradition related problems that's originating from India, because as much as culture and tradition seems brighter on the outside, when it goes to the individual level, I don't think it is as beautiful as it is, it becomes more compulsive. At least that's my experience and experience of my friends who have tried to get away from it, right? What's the point you want to get away? Because it's just, it's compulsive, right? So the 
uh, how do we overcome that compulsion rather truly enjoy what we are doing now i think culture can be only perceived from outside when a person is doing i don't think he, should, he or she should be focused on culture or tradition but uh, i think culture or tradition is the thing that is honored and people are doing it to follow it so this chicken or egg thing which comes first so we got to break that and say do it and whatever you're doing might be perceived as culture from the outside yeah like you i i love talking to you our last conversation was really good i think that we i think in the first day we had like 360 views on the youtube channel and i people really responded to the things you were saying and i i think you're going to help a lot of people. I'm glad you made the choice that you did, Ranga, because it was the right choice and I can Thank see you. your passion in about it. Like and for for everybody out there that's questioning what's right and wrong for them, that I would I would point you towards Ranga and listen to what he says because he lays it out perfect. Like you have to do even if people around you think maybe you're doing the wrong thing, that's not a reason for you to not do it. The, it's it's the courage to do what you know you have to do to make you be successful and i know that's the path you're on man and it, it quite honestly it's pretty inspiring so thank you for doing it man i'm looking forward to seeing what you got coming up thank paula pow paula pow what where can people find you what are you up to and um what are you excited about man it's like everybody else here has got like you know <laughs> websites and writing books and linkedin and you know starting podcasts or you know you really can't find me you're sending um, queens all over the world my friend i think that well, you are doing some pretty big things no but you can't you really can't find me and the you know the people that i sell queens to i've been you know been doing it for a long time and i and to be honest i started selling queens cuz i put a one um post on the classified section of the b source forum and then i've never anything <laughs> since then that's awesome um it is and what's it going um, right for a queen? what's that what's it going right for a queen i'm curious between 25 and 30 bucks oh really wow. yeah yeah because you know i mean there's such high demand you know can you mail them here no, i'm just kidding yeah <laughs> yeah you put them in the mail that's what we do uh ups <laughs> fedex one day yes um Yeah, and I don't really I don't really do the social media stuff. Um, you know, kind of like a I don't know, you know, Stephen Hawking's like jungle theory. I don't really <laughs> want to be, you know, I kind of lay low. I farm, you know, so I spend a lot of time on, you know, hundreds of acres either by myself or with only a handful of other people and and I and I and I really enjoy that. It makes me jealous. Yeah, it makes me jealous. <laughs> <laughs>
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.